0: If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: I'll just hand straight over, really, and ask you all to join me in a very warm welcome for Lars Iyer and Ray Monk. Thank you very much. It's my great privilege and pleasure to be part of this promotion of this wonderful novel by, by, by Lars Wittgenstein, Jr. Um, I was asked to join in a conversation because I myself have written on Wittgenstein, and um, I must say... I. I I love the book, and I would recommend it heartily to you all. So there's lots to talk about with this book. There's philosophy, fiction, Wittgenstein, culture, literature. So, Lars, I want to start, first of all, you're a very unusual beast. You're a philosopher who writes novels. I can't think of any other living... I mean, Iris Murdoch did it, but I can't think of any other living example of somebody who combines both those roles. So I want to talk a bit about you, um, and I wanted to begin with your background in philosophy. Can you describe what your background is, what you studied, what you found interesting, what you did your PhD on, and so
2: on? Thank you, Ray. The first thing I should say is that Ray's book on Wittgenstein was the one that inspired me to to write on Wittgenstein. It's an absolutely wonderful uh, biography. My interest in philosophy began as an adolescent, um, during that period of adolescence, we ask ourselves questions about why it is we, uh, we do the things we do, how we ought to live, uh, what we might aspire to, what we might hope for, how we might live together communally. We ask questions which are ethical, political, and so on and so forth. And it was these questions that I took with me into academic philosophy. I was very lucky in many ways. The people who taught me um, were inspiring in many ways, but there was always a frustration on my part that... For me, philosophy was more about living, about the attempt to live a worthwhile and and just life. And my feeling always was, from the beginning to the end of my study, that philosophy was never quite concrete enough. It didn't emphasize the way in which we as individuals, as would-be philosophers, lived, should live, even had to live.
0: Yeah, that's right. I I mean, uh, Wittgenstein himself described the first philosophical question that came to him. Which was when he was, uh, I think he, he was a young boy, he was walking through a door, he got halfway through the door, he said, when the question occurred to him, why should I be honest if it's to my advantage to lie? And it was important, I think, to philosophy that philosophy came to him, he didn't go to philosophy. Okay, so, like a lot of people, philosophy, as it were, came to you, but then you're very unusual in a philosopher in writing novels, and I wonder if you could, 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 could uh, tell us wh- when you started writing novels and what, uh, and what drew you to that particular form of literature.
2: I felt, when I was trying to do philosophy, I felt, you know, from the beginning that philosophy is very difficult, enormously so, and that doing philosophy or attempting to do philosophy has a price, and an enormous price. You know, I felt at stake in, um, in writing the various things I wrote. I felt that... Um, I was being judged in some way, and writing literary materials and writing in general was for me a way of um, trying to avoid that judgment, that glare of judgment, that sense in which I was being watched and assessed and judged. It was an attempt to escape that eye in the sky that was asking me to justify what it was I was doing. So in that sense, um, while studying as an undergraduate, as a postgraduate, while I was uh, attempting to teach philosophy, I was also at the same time time, in my own way, attempting to pursue a literary career, though I was doing so very ineptly, very incompetently, you know, stumbling and staggering. But It was my attempt to have done with a judgment of philosophy, in some sense. Right, so
0: I, I wonder if we could reflect a little bit about the relationship between your work as a philosopher and your work as a novelist, and more generally, the two forms of of, of writing. Uh, I write biography and I also write philosophy and I was very aware when I started writing biography that I had to unlearn a lot of habits that I had acquired as an academic philosopher. One of the most important of those was this. When you write an academic piece in, in, in philosophy, if you quote somebody, you then tend to devote the next paragraph to analyzing and describing what that quotation has said, as if it's in a foreign language or something. You can't do that in biography. It's the absolute death of a biography to do that. I, I remember once reading a biography of Virginia Woolf uh, in which the author quoted Virginia Woolf writing to Leonard Woolf saying, I feel no sexual attraction towards you. And the biographer then spent the next paragraph saying, what Virginia Woolf is saying here is that she feels no Absolutely. sexual attraction. To w- and that's what you can't do. That's what I had to unlearn as a, as a biographer. So I wonder whether you had to unlearn things and also... More positively, whether the two forms, philosophy and and and, and novel writing, you know, uh, interacted in a more
2: positive way for you. We were talking before um, our discussion here today, and Ray, you were saying that uh, you know, the biographer has to let the subject speak in some sense, and this is what your your biography does uh, wonderfully, or Wittgenstein. Um, how to let these characters speak? How to um, bring them to life convincingly? How to make them uh, something which would embody um, life in some way. This is the challenge of the, of the writer. For me, um, I, I associate literature with lightness, the attempt to be light, to, to dance in some way, to, um, to dance on the tops of spears. I don't, I'm not sure what I would call it, but the, the idea of a lightness, um, a dancing lightness, in terms of philosophy, in terms of academic philosophy, I have felt myself, when I'm doing my academic philosophy, a very heavy, laborious, dreary kind of figure uh, and you put it well, Ray, when you say that whenever you quote as a philosopher, you have to back up your quotation. You have to, you have to um, show you've understood what's being quoted. The idea of literature was to leap into life in some sense, leap into, into something concrete, something which wouldn't have to be justified or backed up or qualified or explained, something which would in some sense be itself, however mysterious that might sound.
0: That's no, very interesting. And, and um, I mean, so, so the method is very different. But could it be that the aim is the same? I mean, could it be that as a novelist, in a very different way, in a light dancing kind of way, you're getting across something maybe that overlaps with what you would get across as a philosopher?
2: I think um, as a philosopher, I feel very guilty um, to have produced the novels I've produced. I feel that something has gone wrong, (laughs) that I've been allowed to get away with something. Uh, I feel that um, as an academic, you know, these books are not footnoted and backed up and referenced. And and it's it's not refable, right? It's not. (laughs) Actually, they are refable. Anyway, Anyway, so I feel that um, that, that something something has been permitted um, to me. I've been allowed to do something. I feel a kind of thrill of transgression in writing the way in which I do. So as someone trained in academic philosophy... I always feel embarrassed and guilty and humble, especially before other people who work as academic philosophers. You find far more um, people working in the university than you might think in philosophy who are frustrated with the world as they find it, who are frustrated with academia as they find it, who are attempting to to live in some way, to to work with the current situation such that they can produce something which they can um, stand up uh, and, and declare themselves the author of. So in some sense, um, I always feel guilty, embarrassed, scuttling away from attention. I feel, oh my God, what have <laughs> I done now? Who let, me get a, a, who let me get away with this? Something of that kind. But do you think a novel can make a philosophical
0: point? And is it part of your purpose as a novelist to make a philosophical point?
2: I, I would hope a philosopher can make a philosophical point through, through some kind of uh, fictional work. Um, my own purpose... Would I even call myself a philosopher? Who has a temerity to call themselves a philosopher? The word philosopher isn't honorific, in you know, my view. It should be bestowed upon you by others. You know, others might say, this person was a philosopher. And once upon a time, there were individuals whose life showed such integrity, such purpose, such um, moral, moral um, coherence, they were called philosophers. And these individuals were not necessarily those who wrote books or who had what we might call original ideas. And the testimony of their being philosophers was their life as philosophers, the way in which they live, the way in which they attempted to answer to a call of philosophy. How can I say that I answered the call of philosophy? My um, characters in the trilogy I wrote before, uh, Wittgenstein Jr., you'll see it here at the front, the spurious trilogy of spurious dogma and exodus. uh, My characters always want to live in this way, to embody something to become incarnate something, to live in a way which is in some sense true, but they always have a sense in which they do not live up to these ideals, in which they cannot um, achieve this level of, um, of uh, integrity, coherence, seriousness, and that is a problem which I must admit I likewise feel.
0: Let's home in now on this particular book. Why, why Wittgenstein?
2: For me, What drew me to philosophy was the idea of living philosophy, in some sense, of, uh, of being a philosopher, not writing philosophy or even teaching philosophy, but being something. For me, Wittgenstein is one of the great contemporary examples of someone who sought to do something similar. This was a person who was certainly concerned with logic, with philosophy, and passionately concerned with them. But he also, and fundamentally, wanted to live as a human being, wanted to be something integral, coherent, wanted to hold himself together in some way that he could admire and respect. So in that sense, Wittgenstein, for me, was embodying something we find in the great philosophers of ancient Greece, or the great philosophers of the, of the Christian period, of a, of a way of um, understanding philosophy, which all too often we can forget in the contemporary academic scene. So Wittgenstein, for me, was an exemplar when it came to um, understanding the philosophical life.
0: Good. Um, I, was very, I was very interested in, in, in the relationship, because Wittgenstein Jr. is not Wittgenstein, right? Mm-hmm. Wittgenstein Jr. is not Ludwig Wittgenstein, but he has important things in common with Ludwig Wittgenstein. And I, I, I'd be very interested to hear you talk about the relationship between Ludwig Wittgenstein and Wittgenstein Jr., the, 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 the differences, as it were, why, why, why you created this person who wasn't Wittgenstein, but
1: mm-hmm. who was
0: called Wittgenstein or nicknamed Wittgenstein. And then also, I was very interested in the use you made in the novel of Wittgenstein's brother. In real life, Wittgenstein came from a large family, and no less than three of his brothers committed suicide. Hans was a great musician, committed suicide because his father wanted him to go into the iron and steel industry rather than pursue a career in music. Uh, Rudolf wanted a career in the theatre and killed himself in a very melodramatic fashion in, in, in Berlin. And then finally, Kurt uh, uh, shot himself at the end of the First World War when the troops under his command uh, deserted. So three of Ludwig Wittgenstein's brothers committed suicide. Now, your brother in the novel commits suicide, but he's very mm. unlike Wittgenstein's actual brothers. He's more like Wittgenstein, in fact. In mm. fact, he's, he, in some ways, he's more like Wittgenstein than Wittgenstein Jr., because he does a lot of the things that the real Wittgenstein did. He goes to Norway, he works on logic, he has all these thoughts about logic that he develops in Norway, uh, and the real Wittgenstein said that year in Norway was when his mind was on fire. So, okay, so sorry, this is a very long winded uh, thing, but the, I wanted you to talk about two things. One is the differences between Wittgenstein Jr. and Ludwig Wittgenstein. And secondly, uh, what was going on in the creation of Wittgenstein's brother and your use of Wittgenstein's brother to do a lot of the things
2: that the actual Ludwig Wittgenstein mm. did? Thank you, yes. Uh, um, Wittgenstein, Junior, Wittgenstein Junior is, is, a, is a, a character who lives in the present. Um, Wittgenstein is a nickname the students give this individual. So he's someone who teaches at Cambridge University in the present, right now. And his students are, um, are contemporary students. I was asking myself in creating this character, what would it be like for Wittgenstein himself to find himself in contemporary Cambridge? The academic scene has changed beyond recognition. It's um, driven by, uh, by targets of various kinds, as we find across the public sector. Uh, the academia of contemporary Cambridge is subject to uh, the attempts to find grants on the part of academics, to find money from somewhere or another, to justify their existence as, as thinkers, as philosophers, as humanities scholars, in terms of um, parameters which are drawn from from business. So I asked myself, what would Wittgenstein make of the contemporary scene? How might he understand um, his his place in contemporary academia, in contemporary Britain, given the, the real Wittgenstein's commitments? So that was the idea of Wittgenstein Jr. What would it be like for Wittgenstein to find himself in a contemporary setting? But you know, as I wrote it, I felt that there was something I I was missing, something I'd missed out on in the real Wittgenstein, something um, which was so sure, something so pure, a drive to do philosophy, to do logic in a manner which my Wittgenstein did not fully embody. So I invented this character's brother. So my character Wittgenstein Jr. has a brother And this brother, as Ray was saying, went off to Norway, went off in solitude, went off to work on logical matters, on logical questions. This brother was someone who wholly devoted himself to philosophy and in the end took his own life when he felt that he couldn't complete his philosophical system. So the reason why I included this character was because I felt that my Wittgenstein... The Wittgenstein Jr., or the title of the novel, was someone who was more beset by worries and doubts than the young Wittgenstein himself might have been. You asked me, Ray, about differences between Wittgenstein Jr., my character, and the real Wittgenstein. My character is more equivocal. He's someone who has a relationship to philosophy, which for him requires um, more discussion, more reflection. He thinks about his thinking much more, I think, than, the, than the, the real Wittgenstein might have done, at least in public. So my Wittgenstein is really only part of what the real Wittgenstein was. And for that reason, I created the brother. The brother is um, is the the, the double star system here, who were my attempt to incarnate aspects of what the real Wittgenstein embodied.
0: Good, thank you very much, It's very interesting. Okay, I'd like to ask about a notion that comes up repeatedly in the novel, and a phrase that occurs repeatedly in the novel, the phrase, after philosophy. Now, the real Ludwig Wittgenstein said that what he was looking for in philosophy was the idea or the way of looking at things that would enable him to give up philosophy. Now, in your use of the phrase, after philosophy, is, there are two ways of taking this. One is that it's your character, Wittgenstein Jr., doing what Ludwig Wittgenstein, in real life, said he wanted to do, which is to find the solution that would enable him to leave philosophy, to give up philosophy. That's one meaning of the phrase. The other possible meaning of the phrase is that philosophy is just finished. There's no more philosophy. And I, in some of your formulations, it sounds like one, and in some, it sounds like the other. So, 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 you know, you say, after philosophy, we will have this. After philosophy, we will have this. Sometimes it sounds like a general statement about, as it were, the death of philosophy or the overcoming of philosophy. And sometimes it sounds like a personal achievement on Wittgenstein Jr.'s mm. part. And I wondered, you know, whether you had a settled view of which,
2: which it was. Yeah, thank you. I mean, after philosophy... My my character, Wittgenstein Jr., dreams of that time in which he will no longer think about thinking, in which he will no longer be tormented about questions about life. He will simply live. Somehow, for my character, Wittgenstein Jr., there is a way of living unreflectively, of being lodged in the world in such a way that thought itself, thinking about thinking, is inseparable from that way of being lodged in the world. So the idea of, of being after philosophy, it's a personal goal for Wittgenstein Jr., it's a way of um, attempting to uh, become one with ordinary um, life, with common life, with, with ordinary people. My Wittgenstein um, throws himself into the arms of a, of a student that he's teaching in the hope of this, of this personal utopia, of being able to give up a whole dimension of thought. On the other hand, as we know, the real Wittgenstein sought to untangle problems of philosophy, issues in which philosophy became entangled. The real Wittgenstein was, was very suspicious of some philosophical problems that have arisen in the history of philosophy, believing them to be um, undoable, um, uh, to be, um, to be uh, false problems, pseudo-problems, that when we look at them in the right way, will simply disappear. And likewise, my philosopher, uh, Wittgenstein Jr., has a similar sense of um, the goal, the orientation of philosophy that one day we'll be able to simply get rid of things and show the world as it is and live as what it is we are and be who it is we are and simply, in that sense, to live life. That's the goal. This is something which is, from the perspective of any of us who attempt to think about issues and problems in the contemporary world, this is a utopia, it's an ideal, It's, it's impossible. But that ideal seems to regulate Wittgenstein's own philosophical endeavours. It's what he strives for, it's what he wants, both personally and for his subject as a whole.
0: Can I ask you about... uh, I mean, this this is a a detail, but it's a detail that intrigues me because it's a phrase that occurs twice in the novel. You write that after philosophy, we will have words for everything, not just for every type of thing. And I wonder, is this... Is this an ambition of Wittgenstein, Jr., or is it something that you yourself regard as ideal? And if so, what, why?
2: I suppose in the novel, this idea that there'd be a word for everything every is something which, um, in, in, a, in a fanciful reading of the book of Genesis, you know, we, we might find in, in the Bible, or we might find in rabbinical commentaries in the Bible, the idea of a pure language, a language in which we speak the name of each and every thing, that every single thing would have a particular name given to that thing by God, and all of us would have a secret name that would be unique to each of us. This is a a dream, think this pure language, where language would not be um, a matter of generalization. Let me make this uh, more clear. When we use the word tree, we can refer to a number of different trees. Uh, This tree, that tree, oaks and pine trees and so on and so forth. But my Wittgenstein dreams of a kind of language in which we can simply name things singularly those individual, uh, in such a way that we respect the singularity of this particular tree, of this particular person. It's an absurd dream, in a sense. It's a utopia. It's impossible. Language doesn't work in that way. But It's what my Wittgenstein dreams of, and this is the the way in which we might understand this idea of after philosophy for my particular character.
0: One of the reasons it interested me is that, that, of course, Bertrand Russell did envisage such a language. Mm. Uh, And he said that this would be the only logically... Uh, pure language and he took it to extreme so it's not just that each tree has its own name if you look at a tree from one view you've got a different thing in russell's version mm. than if you go around the back and look at it from from another side so thing here means sense datum and, the, and, and russell says each sense datum would have its own word mm. and therefore the logically perfect language would be a private language and it's precisely that notion that Wittgenstein is arguing against in philosophical investigations.
2: Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? So, this idea that there could be a, a language um, where everything is named and um, uh, everything's honored in its singularity and its particularity is precisely what the later Wittgenstein would strike against. My character seems to be aware, if you read the novel, he's, he's interested in the rabbinical commentaries in the Bible. He seems at some stage to have been introduced to them. And he's interested in the idea of this act of naming. He's interested in, in rewinding um, back to that, that moment of Genesis, whether this would lead him to this um, utopian space, this, this possibility of existing a world of pure names or um, sense data um, which would come together into various ways, renamed differently each time, whether this would be possible. And whether such a situation would be after philosophy, mm. or you know, as it were,
0: in the midst of it. Mm. And I, I, um, Lars, you've written a very interesting manifesto, as you've called it, that you published on the web, mm. in which you talk about the death of literature, and I wonder whether this notion of the death of literature is tied in any way to this notion of a situation after philosophy.
2: Mm. It's an interesting thought, and it's one which I never really considered until, uh, until now. Um, you know, um, if I if I if I dream, you know, rather than think rationally and logically and so on and so forth. Um, When I dream of um, novels of, say, the 18th century, I I think of a a kind of ease to writing. Someone like Rousseau would write these letters, and he'd write 20 letters a day, and each one of them was written with an apparent ease, with a grace of style, and this fellow was lodged in a literary culture which made such writing possible. But writing was a kind of gesture. It's easy, it's taken for granted. It's not a, a, a result of effort and sweat. For me, our time is a time after the fall, So writing becomes difficult for us because we live in a culture, which is um, you know moving in a in a a direction which is primarily visual. So young people are visually literate in a manner in which they might not be, um, as as it were, literary literate. Whatever the expression would be, it's a visual culture, and in this visual culture, literature becomes a kind of self-conscious thing. It's uh, perhaps crabbed, aware of itself. It's uh, something which which thinks about its own procedures in that manner. You know, you wonder whether literature couldn't simply dissolve its, um, with the word pretentious to be right here, dissolve itself in some way and plunge back into what was natural to it, natural in inverted commas, something which was automatic to the writers of the 18th century, perhaps even the 17th century. Of course, this is absurd. Of course, this is impossible. But nevertheless, it seems like a sort of dream, a utopia to me.
0: But when, when you speak of the death of literature, do you have your tongue in your cheek or, 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 or do you really think there is a sense in which
2: literature is dead? I suppose a certain history of literature, um, you know, where, where literature is supposed to embody hopes and dreams, where literature is supposed to, to um, reflect something which nothing else can, can reflect as a medium. where literature becomes the repository of um, a whole range of ambitions about living, about life. This form of literature, although it's still written, you know, um, I wonder what reception it actually receives. I wonder how um, broad an influence. I wonder how it has in our culture. I wonder um, what place it can have in our, in our predominantly visual culture. So I wonder whether young people have that relationship to, to novels, to literature, which they might once have had, where literature was a was a source of um, a source of something. You know, think of F. R. Leavis, think of D. H. Lawrence, think of Virginia Woolf. Where literature is a kind of research a searching, a looking for something which only literature itself can embody. There are wonderful writers today, but I wonder whether that aspect of literature, as research in that way, hasn't simply fallen away, hasn't become too self-conscious, too self-aware, too self-reflexive, something of
0: this kind. There seems to me almost a performative paradox here. I mean that this event itself, where we've had to turn away people from coming here to, to hear a novelist speak about a novel. Seems to me proof that
2: literature is not dead. This is a wonderful surprise. (laughs) (laughs) What can I say? I was expecting 10 people. (laughs) So uh, how can we respond to this? You know, um, pretentiously, I might say, what, what we call literature.
1: Cool fact. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
2: Uh, is a site of a, is, is a place of a kind of struggle. Uh, we're looking for something through literature, something for which we, we can't grasp, something which we, uh, which literature seems to point to. We can't quite find it. We're confused about it. The contemporary author, meeting the contemporary author, talking to that person, listening to that person talk is a a search of some kind. Uh, Not perhaps a philosophical search, but a search for what literature once was. These are vague things and very pretentious things. I can say simply that literature does not seem to have a place in the lives of people who I teach that it might once have had. That it simply doesn't figure in their awareness of, of culture. I say this... Sadly, I lament this, it's not some triumphalism, I think it's unfortunate. My my students, I teach a literate in visual culture, in musical culture. If I'm teaching philosophy to our students, I I use um, musical examples constantly. Examples from the contemporary uh, popular cultural world. I can't use literary examples. So in that sense... Except for Harry Potter. Even even though, I I mentioned Voldemort in this novel, I know nothing about Voldemort. (laughs) I, 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 I went on Wikipedia, looked up Harry Potter, I thought... I to put some reference to this because the students will, in Harry po- in, in, in my novel, will have read Harry Potter at least, perhaps nothing else. So I, I put the reference in. But the references in the novels are to popular cultural works: Dirty Dancing, uh, Saturday Night Fever, um, what else? Um, Strictly Come Dancing. These are the references the students um, are natural to the students in, in the novel.
0: Sure. Um, so this idea of the death of literature, central to it, is this contrast between a visual culture and a verbal com- culture. Which, which brings me to a central idea of Wittgenstein's in, in his early work and his later work. The contrast between what can be said and what can only be shown. Mm. Now, it seems to me, and, 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 and this, was, this was an idea that Wittgenstein didn't abandon. It, 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 you know, it, it appears in the later work, not in those terms, but in, in, in terms of the understanding that consists in seeing connections, mm. which he contrasts with the understanding we get from, from, from a theory. It seems to me that in that contrast, Wittgenstein himself is emphasizing the visual, that which we can see, sometimes privileging that above the verbal, that Mm. which we can say.
2: My characters and my students in the novel, these are young people who, although they might not be literate, although they might not be that interested in philosophy, they are alive, fresh, excited people. For me, they're, they're visual. They're, they're turning onto the visual world in some sense. They're open to these pop cultural matters I've, I've spoken about. They're also open to things around them in a the way that my character is not quite. So my character, Wittgenstein Jr. turns to the students to help him open himself to the ordinary everyday world, to that world the students inhabit and he does not. And in that sense, you know, in some ways for the novel, the, the question of, 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 of uh, moving to this stage after philosophy is Wittgenstein Jr.'s problem not the student's problem at all? Mm. They're there already, they already live <laughs> right. in some sense.
0: Yeah, um, let's talk about humor because the, the book is occasionally very funny. And, and um, Wittgenstein once said that he could imagine a serious work of philosophy consisting entirely of jokes.
2: Mm. Can you? I'm not sure about, about uh, whether I can imagine such a thing, I, I don't know. For me, um, black humor. Black humor is is the the mode of humor I try to employ in the novel. And if it is funny, I hope it's funny because of uh, blackly humorous um, reasons. You know, when you find satire, satire, we satirize this, we satirize that. When we satirize, we have a norm in mind. We have a a state that we want to restore. So in satire, for the most part, it's not, not always the case with satire, but for the most part, when we satirize something, we have a norm, we have a system of values in mind that we want to restore. The world in which my character, Wittgenstein Jr., lives is a character in which such a set of values, such a set of norms, is something which he does not feel is available anymore. He feels he lives in a time where these norms are are collapsing, are falling apart. He feels he's living in a time where a whole system of values is crumbling. My students, the students in in the novel, I should say, they also have a sense of something similar. They feel a sense of despair about leaving their undergraduate studies and going into the world. They despair about having to find a job in today's difficult job market. They despair about the amount of debt that they will incur while studying. So there's a general sense in this novel of unease, of a world that's shifting and changing, of a Cambridge university that's no longer what it once was, of a world outside of Cambridge University that seems to be drifting, adrift, falling away from from, from former certainties. One way to capture this sense of a a disappearing world for me is through a kind of blackly humorous acknowledgement of this disappearance. So black humor is the weapon I use. And for me, it's very characteristic that when I speak to adolescents, I often find in their attitude towards the future, when they discuss the prospect of getting jobs or overcoming their student loans and student debts, I find in them a blackly humorous assessment of their situation. They laugh at, what, at the situation in which they find themselves, but they laugh, they laugh in a manner which is sad, that they feel lost in some sense. So for me, that's the purpose the humour is supposed to serve in this novel and in the novels that precede it, in the trilogy. All of these are attempts at a kind of black humour.
0: Um, Wittgenstein Jr. In, in the book is working on logic, but he's also he, he's looking for love. He really wants mm. to be loved and to love another person. Are these pulling him in different directions, the logic and love? I mean, I mean, the real Wittgenstein had an ambivalent relationship here. I mean, when he his first love, David Pinson, he went to Norway to escape that because he felt that mm. he couldn't stay in Cambridge with this man that he was in love with because it would get in the way of his logic. But then in later life with, with, with Francis Skinner, he didn't feel that his love for Francis Skinner was getting in the way of his uh, attempt at philosophical clarity. So, how is it with Wittgenstein Jr.? Is, is it, are logic and love pulling him in different directions?
2: Yeah, there's, similar, there's a similar ambivalence um, in the novel. Um, Wittgenstein falls in love, a young student falls in love with him. It seems that a kind of utopia has been opened to Wittgenstein that he'll be able to live this world after philosophy. I won't spoil the ending, I won't spoil the ending saying exactly what happens. But this was this is the possibility that <laughs> in seems. In there to, are three endings, not to spoil. Wow, Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a story in itself. <laughs> um, but that, so, that there, so the Wittgenstein, the in in, in in this um, in this this version of the of the novel, he feels something's been opened to him, a whole dimension, and the question is whether he will flee this this this, um, this 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 life that's being offered to him. The young man in which he's in love, this young man in whom he's in love, is a, an innocent. He's someone gentle, he's kind, he's someone who is not tormented by the problems that Wittgenstein himself is tormented by. The young man with whom he falls in love seems to be able to pass the days without feeling burdened by difficult questions. And Wittgenstein, junior, in my novel, thinks perhaps here, perhaps here is what I need. Perhaps this is the direction in which I need to go. Perhaps this, this love affair will save me. He feels ambivalent because at the same time, he also wants to continue his logical reflections. He seems to need his logical reflections. His ability to do logic um, seems to be an index of his general mental health. There's a tussle in the novel.
0: Or sometimes a measure of his madness. right?
2: Of his mental health, of his madness. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes he feels the logic is sending him to insanity. Yes. Sometimes he feels the logic will redeem him. Sometimes logic is the logos of God. The word of God. This is the word um, where everything will be named. Everything will have a unique and different name. And if he understood that, he would be free. Sometimes logic leads him to the non-logos, the unlogos, a chaos, a pandemonium, a state in which nothing can be named, nothing is stable. There is simply a chaos without foundation, without stability. And it's this chaos that he, that he fears more than anything else. So when he falls in love with this man, this young man, this student, what he feels is dissolution. What he feels is he will fall apart. Even as at the same time, he feels this young man is God in some sense. This, the innocence of this young man is the very incarnation of God on earth. The same ambivalence applies. Good. Uh, I'd like to end with... with, with um Uh, This
0: question, which is in the novel there are some really pertinent and acute observations about modern university life and it seemed to me that you were making good use of, you were exploiting your privileges as a a novelist to hold up all sorts of things to ridicule that we as academics know are bullshit. We're surrounded by this bullshit Mm. every day of our lives. We're told you know, look, tell me your targets. Tell me, you know, what, what academic articles you're going to publish in the next coming year. I, I, uh, I was saying to Lars before this, I, I once had an appraisal meeting with my line manager. This is the language we use in academic life now. I had an appraisal meeting with my line manager in which he told me, look, what courses you teach, how well you teach them, what your students think of them has no bearing on the appraisal of how well you're doing your job the only measure of how well you're doing your job is how much research income you are bringing into this university. And it seemed to me that you were making good use of your, you know, the fact you're not writing this as an academic, you're writing this as a novelist, and holding this kind of thing up for ridicule and exposing how deeply pernicious it is and how contrary to anything that we might call, you know, good philosophy Mm -hmm. it is.
2: That's absolutely right. Um, this novel, like the previous novel, Exodus, the trilogy, um, contains a large element of uh, contemporary critique of, of the university of the structure of academia. Not just the university, though, but a contemporary society, more generally. My aim is to to, um, to to diagnose, to attempt to expose, even perhaps to suggest a kind of correction to values that predominate in contemporary Britain, values that are produced by the particular form of capitalism in which we live, by by the demands of um, quality assurance. This is a phrase which uh, strikes a dagger into any academic's heart. Uh, The demands of... um, (laughs) I was
0: once asked, (laughs) what are you doing to close the quality loop?
2: I'm often asked this. I'm often asked this. You know, I work at a university that in the 80s... In the 80s, my university closed down its philosophy department, which was famous for the quality of its teaching. And for the time that the members of staff in that department spent with students, there was a, a, a room in that department where a, mem- a member of staff would always be present for a student to go in to discuss any intellectual issue that they had. Amazing. Imagine this. That department was closed. Why? Ostensibly because, you know, um, there was no need for the philosophy department anymore, blah, blah, blah. It was closed because they weren't bringing in enough research income they weren't narrowly focused on a, a range of research targets, um, on, on income-generating schemes. So for me, these novels I've written, this novel and, and the previous novels, are lamenting um, a, the death of an academic culture. But more than that, they're de- lamenting a, a general um, cultural malaise, which has come about in general in Britain since the 80s, the 80s, the 90s, the noughties, the 10s. This novel is part of a, of a thematically connected trilogy that will, in each novel, Explore a different um, aspect of this uh, of this malaise.
0: Good, and, and, and Wittgenstein Jr. can do this in a way in which Ludwig Wittgenstein couldn't, because Ludwig Wittgenstein wouldn't last five minutes in this culture. Good. Absolutely. Well, I think on that we should we should finish and uh, throw the, the uh, throw it open to questions from from the audience. Um, on page one hundred and forty-three, there is a paragraph which reads: "But thought now is a kind of beetling," he says. "The thinker is a nocturnal insect." The thinker goes about in darkness. The thinker lives and dies unnoticed. His body is swept away with all the others like a dried-up fly in a dusty corner. Um, And I was wondering
1: what that meant when I read it. And now I think, does it maybe have to do with um, the... Well, with the critique of
0: of the society in which Wittgenstein could not uh, live
1: for five minutes as... You just I, think I, I
2: think that's certainly the case. I mean, for this passage, we have Wittgenstein Jr. himself reflecting on what was once possible um, in, in terms of philosophy, in terms of thinking. Once upon a time, the word philosopher was reserved for someone who lived philosophically, who embodied thinking. This person did not have to be an original thinker, did not have to come up with ideas him or herself. This person would simply live in a manner which was integral, which was whole, which was. Um, which, which honoured the, the capacity of human beings to think. And Wittgenstein seems to have in mind at this point, Wittgenstein Jr. has in mind at this point, the Stoics, the ancient Greeks, the early Christians, these sorts of individuals. These are the figures who my, uh, my Wittgenstein seems to admire.
0: It's in that, that image of the beetle.
2: Mm.
0: was very, um, very often used by D.H. Lawrence in describing yes. Cambridge, yeah. in describing a life, as it were, of the mind rather than the body. Uh, He he wrote to Otterlin, you know, these these people disgust me, they're Beatles. Um, And and that's what that passage evoked to me. Mm. Um, Ray, you were discussing earlier the possibility of solving philosophical problems through literature. Yeah. Um, And I was interested by that because Wittgenstein um, is generally seen in the analytic tradition, which is not known for engaging with literature philosophically, whereas the continental tradition much more comfortable with that encounter between the two things and I was wondering Lars the extent to which um, writing novels um, sort of exposed you more to a kind of continental way of thinking or whether indeed you drew on continental thought um, in creating the novel. Thank you very much that's one of the questions Mm. I had in mind and I didn't get around to (laughs) asking. Thank you for that.
2: It's a a, a very difficult question to answer such a, a fraught question relationship between the two kinds of philosophy that predominate today um, in the academy and there are other kinds of philosophy But these are the kinds of philosophy that predominate the question for me was always uh, about life about living about incarnating and and, uh, um, Becoming something which would would make you a philosopher which is something we find in the ancient Greeks um, Something we we, we find in um, the early Christians when I was studying analytic philosophy this is a long time ago These were not issues that I found discussed in, in class I turn to other traditions, um, to Indian traditions, to continental traditions, to the thinkers of the, of the 19th century, like Kierkegaard, like Nietzsche. These sorts of thinkers seem to do something which I, I felt was missing um, in my education as an analytic uh, philosopher. What's happening in analytic philosophy, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, <laughs> but, you know, the turn to continental philosophy um, should not be regarded as, as something necessarily positive because we, we find the same problems in, in continental philosophy we might do an, an, an analytic philosophy, that um, you know, philosophy is about something you study out there. Things we're focusing on have little to do with our personal lives. Continental philosophy, we might, we might you know, pay lip service to the, to the notion that we're dealing with this question of nihilism or, or, or meaning or lived truth, whatever it might be. The fact is, in academia, people are still writing, you know, monographs and commentaries and this philosopher in 60 minutes and that philosopher in 40 minutes and this philosopher in 10 minutes. There are similar problems in in both traditions. It's
0: interesting you should mention Nietzsche and Kierkegaard because when I was a graduate student at Oxford, very much in the analytic tradition, my my supervisor, a very distinguished philosopher called called Peter Strawson, and uh, he asked me one day what what I was reading. And I I said, I've been reading Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. You're really puzzled. He said, but they're not philosophers.
2: Mm. He said, they're, they're literary figures. Well, when I was an undergraduate f- um, student in philosophy, there were courses offered on, on Nietzsche. We were told not to do them. These, this is this is literature. There were courses offered on, on Kant's notion of the sublime, which, which were regarded as, as literature. Kierkegaard was regarded as a, as a literary writer. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons I turned to, 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 to thinking about figures like Nietzsche, Kierkegaard certainly, but also figures like Rilke or Kafka, or Dostoevsky. You know, there seemed to be a whole dimension of um, philosophical reflection um, that was missing from my undergraduate studies and, as it turned out, from my postgraduate studies too, in some way.
0: There's something else I wanted to add, which was you said that Wittgenstein was not known for his um, interest in literature. But actually, he had a deep interest in literature. Mm. And, uh, one of the stories told about Wittgenstein was when the Vienna Circle, which was you know, the very foundation of the analytic tradition, when they invited him to join in their discussions he went to their meetings, turned his back on them, and read them the poetry of Rabindranath Tagore. Hi. Um, I was just going to ask about booze and getting drunk, and (laughs) all (laughs) all?
2: uh, all the novels seem to feature that. And I was wondering, for people that are stuck with thought, with trying to escape thinking, if there is an inevitability towards some form of self-destruction or oblivion that comes with that this is a question close to my heart <laughs> those who those who feel themselves to have failed um they're in hemingway's position you know this is the mar- marvelous quotation from hemingway which i now mangle you know a writer faces eternity or the lack of it each day so the writer feels um before him or her some 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 Something which, which, which is tangible, which is graspable, which is nearly there. But the writer might, might feel, is likely to feel, that, that same thing retreats, falls away. It, it's not there. So is that, 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 that thing, is, is it a mirage? Is it real? Writers drink. Wittgenstein himself did not seem to have problems with, with, with alcohol.
0: He didn't drink excessively. No. I, there's no account of Wittgenstein ever getting drunk.
2: My character doesn't, doesn't drink, really. No. You don't see him drinking. Um, There are other ways in which he torments himself. My characters in uh, the previous three novels uh, drink a great deal (laughs) And the the characters in the students in my novel they also uh, they invent a a cocktail the black zombie Which I invite you those of you in the audience who are brave enough to 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 drink cocktails of this kind. I I invite you to try Um, it's, It's very heady My my characters in the trilogy want to escape their torment Wittgenstein Jr., perhaps similar to the real Wittgenstein, his courage is, is attempting to face it, which is a remarkable thing, to face it sober. Imagine that. Imagine facing life sober. <laughs> Jesus, terrible. But this is, the, this is the glory of Wittgenstein. The, I, yeah.
0: I think it's also possible that one drinks just because it's fun. I, I, I mean, um, at Southampton, I was very proud of a, uh, exp, uh, uh, of a survey that was done in the sociology department many, about ten years ago of different departments trying to discover whether uh, different disciplines had different sort of (laughs) lifestyles. And one of the results of this survey was that undergraduates and graduates and and staff in philosophy drank more than people in other disciplines,
2: Mm. smoked more
0: (laughs) than people in other disciplines, but were happier than people in other disciplines.
2: There we are now.
0: Hello. Um, Lars, your new novel is set in Cambridge, but you've never actually been there. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you um, researched the novel, how you got to know it so well without having been there, and also whether it was important for you to write a campus novel this time, and if there were other authors who'd written campus novels before you who, you were, who were touchstones for you while you were yeah, so, so,
2: the, so the question of Cambridge for me, when I hear the word Cambridge, when I hear the word Oxford, I feel so conflicted. You know, as a young person, what did I want to do? I wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge. You know, I'm a, you know, I'm from a background which is not... A, I'm not a British um, individual. For me, Oxford and Cambridge were Britishness. And you get to such a place and you would be a British person. You know, through and through, you partake of the British tradition. It's like in V.S. Nepal, if people read V.S. Nepal. You know, I feel the same desire to be more English than the English person themselves. And Oxford and Cambridge were always that to me. You know, I wanted nothing more than to be a, a fully-fledged English person, when I was young, um, I, was, I was studying in Manchester in the, in the 80s and 90s at the period of, um, you know, Manchester, the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses. I turned from this, I listened only to classical music and preferably to the music of Benjamin Britten <laughs> and to, uh, you know, to, to Butterworth, um, to folk music, um, to this imaginary England which I had in my head. And that's what Cambridge means to me. I've never been to Cambridge, you know. Um, it's not somewhere I've been. I, I've been to Oxford many times. But I feel I can access a kind of imaginary Cambridge. Um, in the novel, I imagine Cambridge as, you know, once upon a time, um, exhibiting the features of what I call the English lawn: stability, assurance, um, her dream of England as a, as a, as a project, as a, as a benign imperial force, spreading civilization throughout the world. What a marvel! At the same time, I have an utter horror of Britain in this way. I'm um, half Indian. You know, the colonies, uh, I'm very familiar with the with um, the history of Britain in, in India. My relatives were uh, um, Gandhiites following, so I feel a horror of Britain. And then I also feel, when I think about the Britain of today, I feel a sort of longing for Britain of the past, of the 50s, the 40s, or the NHS, of these greatly ambitious um, Uh, projects in civil society, uh, these huge public institutions, what a marvel. So I feel very conflicted about England, and writing about Cambridge is a way in which I can write about that that conflict. I don't feel I need to go to Cambridge to find out about it. I feel that, in a sense, Cambridge is almost everywhere in Britain. It's it's almost everywhere. On the one hand, we have this this history, or these histories, these traditions. On the other hand, we have the transformations in capitalism, which I've alluded to, which have occurred particularly since the 80s, which are you know desecrating um, this, this this old vision this old security this, in other words unconflicted and torn apart and cambridge is a way of um, of naming that conflict of exploring it perhaps in
0: I was just wondering if you had a particular audience in mind when you were writing your book. Were you kind of thinking
2: of students when you are writing it or for the kind of I, academic I, I, or for yourself? Did you not really have an audience in mind? I always think there's, no, well, there's going to be no audience. I mean, I, I was... Yeah panicked tonight thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen? This is the London Review Bookshop of all places. I used to come here and think, wow, this is the most amazing place in the world, literature and philosophy. So my feeling was that there was no audience. I mean, so I I, I cannot account for it. Do I think of an audience? I don't know. I I began writing literary um, fiction um, online, and I wrote to amuse a small group of friends. And it made them laugh. I, I never thought of publication or novels. And it's something similar now. Um, something similar, there might be a, f- a few people who might feel these novels speak to them in some way. Small group. Well, apparently quite a large
0: one, <laughs> <His> <laughs> which is very nice. <laughs> Good. Uh, on that note, thanks, Lars. Thank you. Much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.